Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and just a few episodes ago, I was bragging about how I forced my students to listen to me talk about the TOS episode, The City on the Edge of Forever, for like 20 minutes in class. But this week, it was my students' turn to do presentations on Greek mythology, and the team that did their presentation on Apollo included a pretty lengthy clip from the TOS episode, Who Mourns for Adonais, and uh, really... It's my proudest achievement of my whole life. I, I mean, like, really. I'm incredibly jealous. I, I feel as if I bring up Star Trek often enough that, that these kinds of things should be coming back at me, and they're just not. I guess that's not why people go to therapy. I find that very frustrating. Yeah, Star Trek therapy should be a thing. It should totally be a thing, but me and me alone. <laughs> um, but I'm Valerie Hoagland, and, and, you know, in the morning... I bear a striking resemblance to the Bowel. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Glenn. <laughs> I, I have seen it. Yes, the hairs are not quite the right color, but otherwise, I concur. <laughs> oh, well, together with bad hair mornings and presentations on Greek mythology, we run a speakeasy in the Jeffries Tubes. And today we're talking about the sixth episode of season two of Star Trek Discovery, The Sound of Thunder, which was written by Bo Yan Kim and Erica Lippold and directed by Douglas Arniakoski. We've mentioned before that we hit our first Patreon goal over the Discovery hiatus, and the reward for hitting that goal was for us to do a bunch of extra bonus episodes on Patreon. And Valerie and I did the TNG episode Q Who a few months ago, but just this week we've released the last of the episodes that we owe our patrons for reaching that goal. And this was a Valerie and Brandon team up, something that I love to listen to, but which does not happen nearly enough. Valerie, can you tell people what you guys covered? Uh, yeah, this was really fun. Um, we got to talk about something I'd actually not read before, but that is very close to uh, some sci-fi that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, we were covering the Douglas Adams short story, Young Zaphod Plays It Safe, which is part of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy universe. And that was something that I had put on the ballot because you and I talked about how much you love The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when we took our little road trip out to the uh, the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Ontario, the summer that we were doing medieval Latin together. And uh, we may actually talk about our time in Ontario tonight as we are going through this episode. Yeah, Glenn, you were there for the Shakespeare. I was there because it's where Justin Bieber is from. Oh, and we totally stalked his house. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we uh, before we turn this into uh, lower decks, the Justin Bieber podcast, let's uh, let's get into talking about this episode. Uh, we didn't really love the the last episode. How are you feeling now, Valerie? Oh, it was amazing. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. I was just oh, I loved it so much. Kelpians are my new favorite aliens. I I actually am very surprised that they were able to come up with a new species that I would care about this much and be so invested in and want to learn more about. And I I felt the episode was just overall really well done. Lots of drama, but not too explosion centric and uh, kind, kind of a sadder episode, but but I enjoyed it nonetheless. 
We get a whole lot of questions that we had about the Kelpians answered in this episode, yet somehow now I have more than I did before we went into this one. And I think that's a good thing. I'm super interested in what is happening on Kaminar, how it got that way. And I, I hope that, that the, the Kelpians and the Ba'ul are going to become a real feature, a real staple of Star Trek, you know, much like Klingons and Romulans and Vulcans are. I hope so too, but you know what's uh, what's lucky about all those questions you have is you know next week we have a special guest, the Sphere, who could just fill us in on everything. Yeah, the Sphere knows an awful lot. Uh, I mean, I think I made a good choice of uh, picking the Sphere to to be my my spouse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have so much power now. Uh, what are you going to do with it? Well, I think uh, I think what we should do with this information is is get into the the recap of this episode. Are you ready to go? Yeah, Glenn, hit it. Well, this episode begins in Saru's quarters, but it actually looks like we're in his village back on Kaminar. And this is a a very cool holographic effect that I have to say I really want for my own home. Like if I could just program a wall to look like the wilderness landscape of my choice, uh, that would be amazing. I mean, they're really branding Saru well here for the the present moment, like hanging air plants with macrame and and moss is is very, uh, very in right now. Um, So they know their audience well. And by that, I mean, maybe just me. Yes, they made it just for plants in Star Trek. I'm fairly certain that's true. Well, in addition to this cool shot of Saru's high-tech plant-filled room, we, we get a Saru voiceover, and he says, We all come from somewhere. We carry that place with us wherever we go. And... In this moment, Saru is still getting used to his threat ganglia being gone, and and we'll get some more of this at the end of the voiceover as well. But this sentiment about home here and carrying our past and, and the place that shaped us with us is a real theme of this episode. I couldn't help but kind of immediately contrast the opening of this episode to the opening of episode five, which is something like, you know, we all have language and language means something, uh, right? This kind of like very general blanket statement similar to we all come from somewhere. And I was a little bit nervous about how vacuous this kind of a statement at the beginning of the episode might be, but almost immediately. And and also, I think a l- in large part because Doug Jones is just phenomenal. I was I was there. I was with it. I was I was thinking about where I'm from and how it has shaped me and how I haven't lived there in so long. I, I never really loved living there, but it's just this part of me. Especially because I I do love my family very much and I miss them. And at least right now, there's not a life for me where I came from. Right. And and there is a tension there that I always carry with me. Um, and there is a difference in how I approach my life here in New York being from California. Right. So I, it just really it brought me in. It felt so much more effective to me than kind of a similarly marketed beginning to episode five. And I think you and I are going to especially sympathize and empathize with Saru and his homecoming as we get into this. I think maybe we've been through some of these types of things. I mean, not 
exactly. I've never actually met the Ba'ul and I don't have any threat ganglia. I never have. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of experiences here that really resonate with me and I'm, I'm excited to, to get into it. So let's let's get into the next bit of this teaser. So they're in a lab somewhere on Discovery. Tilly and Ariam are, are going through the Sphere's data and the, the Sphere worked, I guess, as a kind of chronicler and it has data from all over the galaxy for a hundred thousand years. And Tilly says the most delightful thing about this. She says that it's like a slice of galaxy pie, which is a thing I would definitely like to eat. I also love how they just, they wove Tilly into the episode, even though she's not really there. And just through her saying this kind of quirky thing and then continuing to talk, but as the sound of her voice fades into the background, you just, the person, her personality comes through so much through, through that effect that like Tilly is always somewhere on the ship talking a lot. Right. And she actually doesn't do anything really in this episode, except for one key moment where she has a great idea. But she is in so many of these scenes just to provide this this color. And and frankly, I would say to provide morale, right? Like, I think any scene that Tilly is in lifts my spirits and I would want to be serving on the ship that she is on uh, for that reason. Well, we're going to move from delight to distress here, because in sickbay, Dr. Kolber looks haggard and and maybe especially distraught. And Saru, who's there for his post-Vahari checkup, and Saru tries to comfort Dr. Kolber, but Kolber simply doesn't feel like himself. And Saru says that he doesn't feel like he used to either, but he feels like he is now, finally, the person he was meant to become. And I suppose that this was meant to be comforting to Dr. Kolber, but it clearly did not work. This was not a comforting thing to say to him. This scene was just so, so beautiful to me. Um, To have Wilson Cruz and Doug Jones on screen together is also amazing. They're just both phenomenal actors and you you are just immersed immediately into their characters and into the world. But Saru just, the way his character is written is just always spot on um, and just always has the most beautiful, succinct things to say that like I want to write down and, and make like inspirational quotes in uh, across my home. But he says something here that I think is is both beautiful and very important for the episode and advice that Saru is about to not remember having given to someone else that he says when Dr. Kolber says he's not feeling like himself, Saru responds by saying, that enduring something that no one thought possible can be transformative. And perhaps in feeling less like he was, he is becoming more like who he was meant to be. And I I cannot think of a a point in my life where I didn't need to hear that. (laughs) Right? Because we we kind of think that the best way to go through life is adhering to the the things quote unquote that make us who we are and that makes us a little bit rigid in accepting growth and this episode is all about growth saru's journey is all about growth dr culper's is about to be as well i heard these lines as being extremely ominous like these are uh a that these words are are foreshadowing some kind of doom for dr culper but we'll we'll get more about him in a little bit so i'll i'll bring that up again when we get there because right now this sickbay scene really is about saru dr pollard is there and she's been doing checkups on saru and she's reporting back to him now he's fine as far as she can tell he's losing his fear response and He's also growing 
spikes in his head. And Dr. Pollard actually has a lot of lines here and also in another scene that we'll get to later. And I have to say, I really like this character. Up to this point, she's just felt like an information delivery system when she's shown up in episodes. But in this episode, she seems real, like a a, a embodied character. And I, I hope we'll get to see more of her in the future. If past trends speak to future trends, uh, we will, right? We're slowly, slowly getting to know more about everybody on the bridge crew and all these kind of ancillary characters, right? We even get a lot of Arium in this episode comparatively. So I hope that just continues to build. This is really the closest thing we've had in Discovery to a medical drama, right? Uh, you know, the, we don't spend a whole lot of time in sick bay, but much of the plot of this is about physiological things that are happening to Saru. So uh, maybe the writers are getting some more interest in having uh, having sort of doctor-focused or medical-focused uh, episodes as, as we, we go on. Well, Saru finishes his voiceover here in the teaser by saying that he feels like he is losing his identity. He says that he's stumbling in the dark, yet somehow in the unknown, there is a purpose, and he feels that we are being guided toward it. This is going to turn out to be literally true in the episode, and I wonder if the writers here are just being cute and clever, or if we're really supposed to understand that Saru at this moment can sense the hand of the Red Angel at work. I think it's a little bit of cute foreshadowing. I think once the 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 signal appears and, and we get taken to Kaminar that I think Saru pretty authentically doesn't put all of that together until that moment here. He's just trying to work out what's happening to him. And I don't believe that he thinks it has anything to do with, with everything else that's, that's going on, but it is making me as we talk very appreciative of the fact that for the last three episodes or so, we've had very little um, or three episodes ago, none um, of Dr. Colbert, but but the character arcs of other people on the show, namely Tilly and Saru thus far, are mirroring something to do with Culber. And if they keep building it this way in the season and mirroring through through other characters, I just can't wait to see like how Culber comes out of it in, in what I hope is a Culber-centric episode that we eventually get. So they're doing some pretty clever stuff, I think, by doubling up on themes and having them affect more than one character at a time in a profound and slightly different way. Because, you know, when Saru is speaking to Colbert, it's as if he's speaking to himself. And now Dr. Pollard is speaking to Saru in the way that maybe she should be speaking to Colbert, right? Like we can kind of move these lines around and say them to different people and get different meanings in in a pretty neat way. In a lot of these scenes, it feels like the character, in a lot of these scenes, it feels like the right characters aren't talking to each other, but that all the characters are sort of saying the the lines that are appropriate for for someone else who's maybe not even in the scene or who isn't paying attention in the scene, which is some I think some some brilliant and and some clever writing that I I really like the way it sort of makes us work a little bit for for these themes. We've still got a little more teaser to go here. Pike, Burnham, and Tyler are comparing notes about the Red Angel, and Section 31 thinks that the the Red Angel can time travel, though Tyler doesn't really say why they think that. I'm interested. More importantly, though, Tyler wonders whether the Red Angel is merely appearing at these disturbances or if it is actually creating them. Uh, Pike thinks this question, or at least this insinuation, is nonsense, and so do I. It doesn't align with any of the evidence that we have. And this is the the first note 
in this episode of Tyler having transformed from an actual character into a pretty tired TV trope. And I'm, I'm pretty disappointed with how quickly he's taken on the hawkishly paranoid spy guy persona. Because, I mean, he's been in, in Section 31 for like a week or something and somehow has become this cliche already. I agree with you completely. And I do think that by the end of the episode, they deepen this trope persona that Tyler has now um, in a way that made me feel a little bit better. I also do want to say that like, yeah, he's been in section 31 for a week or whatever, or however time works on this show, but he has undergone a like insanely significant amount of drama since finding out he was secretly a Klingon trying to figure out if he loves his rapist, murdering his friend, um, you know, living in a society where people are always trying to murder him and won't accept him having to abandon his bait. I mean, like, you know, the list goes on. So like that he has become a, a, a deeply pessimistic and I think in a lot of ways just very numb character does make sense. It, it's not just a week in Section 31. Yeah, I don't dispute that he's gone through some stuff, but he didn't seem like this person when we saw him on Konos, when all of that stuff had also happened to him. So there, this this transformation to me seems like a writing transformation because they need someone to stand in to be this character. I would hate that character, whoever it is. I always dislike this trope of the the the, the hawkish, paranoid spy person. And I think it just rubbed me the, the wrong way here because it's not a new character that we're getting. It's Tyler. And so it seemed like a major change. And I liked Tyler. So I liked the Tyler that we had. I, I wanted to see... Uh, I had hopes for him in Section 31 being actually kind of the uh, the special forces spy operative who's uh, going through a bit of a goth phase was really what I was looking for. <laughs> the thing I'm holding out hope for uh, is that maybe he's this trope for just a little bit and then he has some sort of like, um, you know, restoration arc where where he comes out of it and we get to like conquer this trope together on the show through his character. That's what I'm hoping for. If it goes in the direction you think it's going to go in, I will also continue to be annoyed. I guess my worry here is that Tyler is actually really just in the show this season in order to have Shazad Latif doing work until the spinoff happens, the Section 31 spinoff happens, and they don't really know what to do with him. And so they've hammered out this role and inserted this character into it, even if he maybe doesn't quite work that well for it. I think that's that's my concern. I don't know where the Tyler is story is going to go in this season, and but but I will I will be hopeful like you. Well this this conversation is interrupted because there's a new red signal that has just appeared and it is at Kaminar, Saru's homeworld. And this is the information that takes us into the uh, the opening sequence. I'm I'm really excited that we're here. We come back from the the opening title sequence. We're in the conference room and finally, after months and months of my letter writing campaign, the the writers are actually going to give us a briefing on Kaminar here. I was so thrilled to have this. There are two sentient species on Kaminar, Kelpians and Baul, prey and predator. The Baul invented a warp engine 20 years ago, and shortly after that, the Federation made contact. But they'd actually been brought there by Saru's message and not by the Baul. And this part, the Saru's message part, was the exact plot of the Brightest Star short trek episode. So we've seen all that before. And 
We learn here, though, that the, the Starfleet ship that brought Lieutenant Giorgio to Kaminar was the Archimedes, which I thought was an awesome name for a ship. Oh, yeah. They're still crushing it with ship naming. That's like, that's the job I want in the future where like, you know, the resource problem is solved and I'm not worried about money. I will just be the spaceship namer person. Official title. <laughs> yeah, I think you have, I think there's like a whole ministry of spaceship names, right? There should be if there's not in the Federation. All right, let's let's get back to the Ba'ul and the Kelpians here. The, the Ba'ul government was hostile to the Federation. And so uh, the two parties made some kind of agreement to just leave each other alone. And the Ba'ul, as we saw in The Brightest Star, use technology to oppress Kelpians. And they do this so efficiently that no Kelpian has seen a Ba'ul. They have no idea what the Ba'ul look like. They don't know anything about them. And at this point, I fully expected that we were in for a Vulcans and Romulans moment where we would discover that the Kelpians and the Ba'ul are actually the same species. Were, were you there too? It, I was not there in this moment. It, it was much later on in the episode, kind of midway. I kind of just had this freak out where I think it's the moment where the the creepy bowel voice says, like, you don't even know what you are. And I was like, oh, my God, bowel are just Kelpians who have passed Vaharai. They're just literally the same thing. I thought the line was like, you don't know that we are actually the same, that like you will become us. Um, and that's what's happening to you, right? Because we get this buildup, as we'll see, of Saru kind of being a jerk. So I was really excited for the plot I made up to happen. I was really a little disappointed that they didn't read my mind. Yeah, I guess I felt a little disappointed when that turned out not to be true as well. Even though I actually really like what happens, I just thought for sure that was going to be the big reveal. And I, I was you know, making popcorn and just getting excited about that revelation. I think I'm actually glad that that's not what they decided to do, because it would have just felt very much like the Vulcan and Romulan deal anyway. Well, Pike thinks that the Red Angel is showing some special interest in Discovery for some reason. And so he wants to go to Kaminar and see if the Ba'ul will team up to figure out what the Red Signal is all about. Uh, Tyler, again, here in this scene is all Section 31 about this and makes a snide remark about how asking nicely for help won't accomplish anything. And he wants to go straight for, I don't know, some kind of espionage action uh, in order to to figure out what's going on with the, the red signal here. Something else I really appreciated about this scene um, and this briefing on Kaminar was that we got some of the backstory filled in about what Giorgio did. From the bias start, it kind of seemed like she just showed up on Kaminar and stole Saru, you know, uh, and didn't tell anybody. And I liked finding out that there were negotiations with the Ba'ul happening in the background. I thought that was pretty cool. It also restores my faith that when we're not given information, there is some sort of reasonable explanation. Then um, I can just kind of throw that nugget in the back of my mind. I will say, though, as tired as uh, Tyler's comments are in this episode, it is fun that then Pike gets to respond because it just I really like being reminded every five minutes that there has never existed a better human than Pike. That might be the the real purpose of this uh, this snide Tyler is actually to to really emphasize how hopeful and optimistic, upbeat and positive Pike is, even in tense moments of like in, of of serious, profound philosophical, moral disagreements and combat scenes that he still 
always is exuding all of these positive traits. And actually, we're going to get an instance of this in the next scene where we're on the bridge. The ship arrives at Kaminar, but the signal is gone. There doesn't appear to be any immediate danger anywhere, and there's no no other indication of why the Red Angel brought them here. And we get uh, another moment here, right, of Tyler acting as Pike's foil when he challenges Pike's assumption that the Red Angel brought them here for some kind of purpose. And this was probably the the my favorite of Pike's responses to, to Tyler in the whole episode. But to be fair to Tyler, showing up and asking for help didn't work here. He was right about that. The Ba'ul won't talk. Uh, they do, however, scan Discovery's weapon systems. And Saru really loses his cool here in this moment. He says that the Ba'ul are oppressors. And even if they wanted to talk to the Federation, why would you trust the people who enslaved him and his whole community, his whole species. This is highly emotional for Saru. And he's really, he's he's raving here. And Pike is in an uncomfortable position as the CEO, but I actually think he handles it really tactfully. He's concerned about Saru's mental state in this moment, but he doesn't just tell him that because that would you know, seem to invalidate Saru's feelings and also probably make things worse. It's like, you know, telling a person who's really angry to calm down is really not the best way to handle that situation. And so instead, he listens and asks Saru for his help. He enlists Saru's expertise here and asks him what he thinks they should do. And I I feel like a broken record, but I love this. And, you know, maybe just a bit of foreshadowing here. Uh, Pike is going to make me cry before this episode is over by being awesome. I I enjoyed this scene. I will say that that one of the reasons I knew something was up is how how hard they were hitting the uh, the oppression plot points, right? Like we are told this over and over and over and over again. So you just know that something about it is going to wind up to be incorrectly um, kind of conceived, right? That, that there's going to be some some sort of twist. But more than anything. It was really disconcerting for me to see Saru like this. You know, I feel like I've gotten to know him and his defining characteristics, which, yes, came, I guess, from a place of of fear, were his gentleness. And when you get these flashes of, of the faces of the bridge crew, they are they look like they're feeling how I'm feeling. Like, who is this and what's happening and I'm nervous. And it's all directed at being concerned. And you pointed this out rightly, Glenn. It's all directed at being concerned for Saru rather than thinking that he is a problem. I really marveled at Doug Jones's acting here because I couldn't believe that that kind, gentle Saru that we know and love could turn into this enraged raving person here uh that had to be a lot of fun for doug jones to to do to kind of go from one end to the to the other in 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 just that one scene i bet that was a lot of fun well the expertise that saru has is to suggest that they contact a kelpian priest Uh, the priests are the intermediaries with the baul but they also serve as a network among all the the kelpian villages and there's there's some prime directive talk here and burnham points out that since the baul have warp capability there's some room for maneuver here some wiggle room but still pike wants to be cautious and so he's going to send burnham down to the planet since she's a xenoanthropologist and will uh, be a good person to talk to a village priest. And this doesn't 
really ever amount to anything, but this line just about made my head explode. The the last time Burnham was sent to talk with a village priest, she was demonstrably the worst possible person to have been given that <laughs> job, right? Back in New Eden, she showed no characteristics of being an anthropologist. She had no interest in the culture of other people, and in fact was almost giddy to mock that culture to its face, and had no respect for the community of New Eden's rituals, and, and she even interrupted their ritual just to point out how stupid she thought it was. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I think this is as ever simply about putting the main character in the episode. <laughs> but I also agree that it's not a good choice. And like, the fact that Burnham is a xenoanthropologist is used as a reason for her to do things a lot that she like, clearly from evidence should not be doing. I want to know more about where she got her degree. Yeah, this Vulcan Science Academy doesn't seem legit to me anymore. I think maybe someone should see about taking their accreditation away. As I said, this line doesn't really amount to a whole lot in the episode. This decision to send Burnham here is really just to set up Saru's rage at at this decision that Pike makes because he thinks that he's the obvious choice to go because, you know, he's a Kelpian. But Pike worries that Saru will complicate things. And I think these are pretty uh, legitimate worries. For one, Saru is potentially still undergoing physiological changes as a result of the Vaharai. And Pike also worries that Saru will be tempted to violate the Prime Directive in order to liberate his people. And it turns out, I think, actually, that both of these things are 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 going on. And we're actually going to see Saru do both of these things. This was a moment where I had I had all the same concerns of Burnham is a problematic choice, given how she behaved last time. Pike ought to remember that and that Saru is a problematic choice because he is demonstrating right now that he doesn't have a lot of ability to regulate some of the new feelings he's feeling. Um, and that's something I want to talk about at, at the end of the episode. Um, again, it did kind of leave me wondering why we couldn't, you know, do up some of the bridge crew in prosthetics to look like Kelpians and send them down, which is a plot point we get all the time in other Trek. I wondered about that as well. And it's just not even on the, the table here. And maybe some of it also is the, the language barrier. They would need to use the universal translator out in the open, which we're actually going to see, right? Because this is not the kind of next generation era universal translator that seems to just, you know, be in your ear somehow. And I will say that, you know, as we get into the scenes, a couple things happen that that make this work out to be a pretty good choice it's just that in this moment when pike is making it it really could have gone either way well and when pike lodges these concerns saru gets even angrier and he becomes physically aggressive and this was some great physical acting here by doug jones and the bridge crew they all get up and they prepare to intervene here if Saru attacks Pike. But Burnham is real shrewd here. So she walks over and she saves the day by asking Pike to be allowed to take Saru with her. And Pike agrees to this. But as they are leaving the bridge, he looks genuinely worried about Saru's mental state in sickbay. That is actually where we are going in the next scene. And uh, Dr. Pollard is now dealing with Colbert and she says that he is totally fine. His neurological scans all line up with the ones from before Voke Tyler killed him. 
but his body is brand new. It was essentially you know, rebuilt or, or regrown from his DNA. And as a result of this, he's missing a scar that he got when he was hiking the cliffs of Cabo Rojo in Puerto Rico. And Culper is really freaked out about this missing scar. And, and while this conversation is going on, he even rebuffs Stamets when he, he touches him. And Colbert is just really focused on talking with Dr. Pollard. And he says that he says that his senses feel off and he simply doesn't seem to me to be at all convinced when Dr. Pollard assures him that he really is fine. This scene is just it felt as awful as I predicted this scene. And, and I'm sure way too many more scenes are going to feel even if it's a great and interesting plot line. It was just seeing um, Stamets beaming to have the love of his life back to the point that he can't notice this isn't the love of his life and he's not having this feeling reciprocated he's you know he just that's how much joy he has and and to me this this is hard to watch because the come down from that is not going to be very fun for him but it, it does bring up one of these really awesome and interesting trek kind of philosophical questions of what what would it be like to be in your be have all your memories but but not be you right right this is actually something that comes up a lot with the transporter and trek fandom trek writers the trek canon itself i think is in a little bit of conflict uh, about what exactly a transporter is and how it works but there is a lot of evidence to suggest that what it does is destroy your body it kills you and then it takes your dna and makes a new body for you somewhere else but when we get episodes that are about transporter accidents this is something that happens a a, a lot people's uh, minds and bodies being switched up um, people feeling like something is is wrong with them and the doctor continuing to say no everything is fine and then of course uh, nope not everything is fine yeah yeah trek is this is this this sort of mind body uh, dissociation is something that the trek has done a lot of Right. And it's something I'm sure we're going to get a lot more of as we get deeper into the Culber story. Um, an- another cool thing before we move on about this scene is uh, just the little, uh, you know, world building that happens from a simple line like, oh, you know, I'm you're missing that scar, you know, the one you chose to keep. Right. Like what a different world than the one we live in now where like a scar is just a thing that you have. But they live in a world where when you get hurt, you don't scar from it. And so you're faced with this very different different choice. And I, it really just was part of the world building that I enjoyed. We had exactly this same thing happen in the Calypso short trek. Uh, Kraft had a visible and recognizable scar. And the Discovery computer commented that, that, that while she was healing him, she did not get rid of that scar for him because she understood that he could have chosen to have it removed at any point and the fact that he hadn't suggested that he wanted to keep it so she did not remove it without his consent it's interesting just to see that come up again so quickly but in part because of that i'm really interested in this scar here dr colbert's scar i think there's more to it than just a a a a way to tell us this information about his body, because we've also seen the scar be important uh, in the case of Lorca, where this was used to hint to us that he was not really who he claimed he was. And 
even Kraftskar in Calypso, this is this is straight from the Odyssey, right? We talked in that episode about how Odysseus's scar was going to be how his wife Penelope would recognize him after being gone for twenty years. So Kraft as the Odysseus in that uh, in the in Calypso, it has this same scar. But so we've we've seen here twice now in Discovery scars being important in being able to tell whether or not a person is who he claims to be or who maybe he thinks he is. So this is where I was getting all of these ominous vibes about Doctor Colbert. This to me seems like a massive indication that this is not really Colbert. That that something is wrong here. I do wonder how how they're going to to treat it moving forward. You know, there's a part of me that just wants a fun plot line where um, because he doesn't have that scar, which is attached to the story about why he became a doctor, that he'll actually have a new profession on the ship. <laughs> um, and that'll be fun. I wonder what it'll be. Um, but uh, I don't think we're going to get that plot. But, you know, as you were talking, I was just made all the more aware of how pervasive some of like the principal themes of this show are such as second chances and dual identities which we're getting here with Colbert and Saru we've definitely had a bunch of it with Ash um Burnham's gone through her own journey i guess pike doesn't have a second identity but it feels almost as if he's like the anti lorca <laughs> so maybe right. there's something there um but but transformation, duality, second chances, identity, all of these things just keep coming up with all of our characters in in, in nuanced ways that is kind of ever-present, even when you forget that it's there. And the, the theme of dual identity could work for Dr. Colbert, even if he actually is Dr. Colbert and I'm making uh, too much out of this, this scar business and uh, maybe still, as we said last time, not quite over season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because... He's gone through this extraordinarily traumatic situation, you know, both the the being murdered by his shipmate uh, and then also, you know, it, trying to survive in hell for like a year or something. Uh, he can't possibly have come back from that as the same person. But yet right here, as we see in this scene, all of these people are hovering around him, expecting him to be that same person, treating him like that same person. And he's he's not. And he's going to have to deal with that even if there isn't something ominous or spooky going on here. Right. And this is something we, we've seen all over this show, too. It's not just these internal conflicts about who who am I, what am I, where am I going, where have I come from, but also what expectations are other people projecting onto me um, about about who I am or or what am I imagining that other people are projecting uh, onto me. And, and so it's deeply interpersonal in the same moment that it is that it is intrinsically internal and it's just it's pretty cool and either way i think we can safely predict that there are there's gonna be a lot of crying uh in the future as this storyline progresses well this is the last that we are gonna get for the the dr culper story in this episode so we're gonna have to wait until presumably the next one the the way things are going with spock this season it may be several more episodes before we really get back to dr culper where we go next is Saru's village, and we get uh, an establishing shot of this. And this is something, Valerie, that you pointed out in The Brightest Star as uh, being actually the Scarborough Bluffs in Toronto. And 
this shot in particular to me was super cool because it's the only filming location in all of Trek where I myself have actually walked around. Though, you know, when I did it, it did not have the cool alien sand or the two moons in the sky. Uh, But still, this was really exciting for me. Uh, Yeah, I don't think I've been out to the bluff. So we're just going to have to add that to our future road trip list. Yeah, we're going to have to get back to Toronto. And when we do, we're going to have to go to every place in Toronto that has shown up in Discovery uh, and take a lot of take a lot of photos and, and try not to get arrested, I guess. But uh, here in the in the village, we get a rundown of the, the situation here. The, the Ba'ul have a device in the village that monitors the Kelpians and summons them to be cold or harvested, executed, basically, uh, before they go through Vaharai. And this device is called a pylon, or sometimes called the watchful eye here in this episode. The two terms are used interchangeably. And Burnham looks around and says that if she didn't know the Kelpians were oppressed, she'd say that this is a paradise. And Saru says that it is. They have no poverty. They have no hunger. And the only violence they know is the calling, when the Ba'ul collect individual Kelpians for execution. And... And I'm really interested in this description, and it's going to be important for some ethical questions that I'm going to have uh, later in the episode. You mentioned earlier, Glenn, that we get a lot of um, questions answered about how Kaminar works. And one of them is that the pylon and the watchful eye are the same thing. Because I think prior to this, I still had a little bit of confusion about whether or not the watchful eye was like a metaphor for something (laughs) or was just like the ships hovering above the planet, but that it's through these towers that are also responsible for the culling uh, clarified some things for me. Right. I think in the brightest star, we were even speculating that the watchful eye was actually something that they, the the Kelpians worship. But so it is nice to have that cleared up here among other things. But what this scene is, is really about is that Saru is reunited with his sister, Serana, who is, now the village priest, because their father died a long time ago. And uh, at the start of this reunion, we get some spoken Kelpian in the scene. And it's only two lines, but it was awesome. It sounded really, uh, really uh, beautiful, really sort of almost elven to me, or maybe almost Finnish to me, I should say. It was great to see or, or to hear some more of the language in this episode, because we only just got the tiniest bit of it at the end of the short trek, The Brightest Star. And I always love hearing more of a new language on on a Trek show. And what was so cool about Enterprise was that the Universal Translator didn't really super work yet or exist because Hoshi was building it. So we got to see Hoshi do all this linguistic interaction. And I really wanted the the language to go on for longer in this scene, I will say. And, and I do wonder if if, as you've pointed out several times, this is related to um, to fans not liking subtitles. I had that same thought, but I think in this case, in this scene, we actually need Burnham to know what they're saying to each other. And so that's why she gets out the Universal Translator and is actually just kind of hovering behind them. Like she's giving them their space, but also actually because they're on a mission, does need to hear this conversation. And of course, Serana speaks to Burnham in this scene. And in fact, in the next scene, we go to Serana's house and everybody is talking to everybody. And uh, Serana does not know anything about the Red Angel. And they get that business out of the way pretty quickly, because what, what really matters here is that she has a lot of emotions about Saru leaving, about Saru abandoning her, but also about Saru coming back and potentially endangering the community. And 
in fact, this conversation is interrupted when the watchful eye turns on and indicates to Serrano that the village is now in immediate danger from the Ba'ul. And Saru and Burnham beam back to Discovery, but Saru and Serrano have not really parted with love in this scene, and it was really heartbreaking, and I was not sure that they were going to see each other again. I I felt I felt in my heart that that they would, you know, unlike uh, the the Tilly May kind of goodbye scene uh, where I was like, how is this going to come back later? Um, this one felt like we're going to get more of this also because Serana is just a, such a lovely presence on screen. And I, it just felt like their story wasn't over for us as audience members. It, it wasn't kind of a conclusion. And, and for, for them, I don't think that it was either. One thing that I did think was really interesting about this scene was having Serana explain to Zaru like how she herself and and the society that she lives in that Saru used to live in too interpreted his departure and it it kind of spoke to me about how other Saru was from the society he was living in even when he was there that he could not have kind of accurately predicted how his departure would be viewed or taken because the way that Serana says it to him is like, obviously this is what we thought you jerk. And he just didn't get it. In the brightest star. We did not see him at all thinking through what really might be the consequences for his village, you know, of his actions of communicating with people out in space with, with leaving and so on. But of course, you know, he was an adolescent at this time. And, and that's really a big part of what's happening in this scene is these two adult siblings who haven't seen each other since they were teenagers, suddenly being back in those feelings they had when they were teenagers. I mean, I'm basically just describing everyone's Thanksgiving, right? But it was it was <laughs> really rich here on, the, on screen. And I, I enjoyed their interaction a lot. I, I so appreciate you reminding me of this because, again, I just forgot he was an adolescent because they just look the same. I can't. It, you had this problem when we were watching The Brightest Star and now I'm having the same problem as I, I forgot the time difference. Yeah, and I actually thought that Serana here looked older. I didn't go back and do a comparison, but I remember thinking that she actually did look childlike in The Brightest Star. And here I thought she actually looked grown up. It may be that there's nothing different about the makeup. Might be something in the acting that she's actually doing, but it could also just be in my head. Uh, it's definitely not in your head. It's one of the first two options or possibly both because I had the same reaction. I thought the same thing. Well, let's get back to the discovery now where we're we're on the bridge and the Ba'ul want to talk now, but they insist on audio only. So at this point in my first watch, I'm still convinced that they are Kelpians. The Ba'ul, who have real creepy voices or some great voice modulators, are angry that there is a Kelpian on discovery, which violates the agreement that they have with the Federation. Uh, Pike tries to deflect this. He tries to talk to them about the red signal, but the Ba'ul just wants Saru back. And if Pike won't give him back, then they'll have to use violence. And at this point, Saru freaks out and he makes an angry speech that the Ba'ul can hear. And he says that he knows what Vaharai really is. But the Ba'ul say here, you know nothing, Jon Snow. You don't know what you really are. And this is what you brought up earlier, Valerie, where this was, you said, where where you thought that they were going to turn out to all be the same species. I mean, at this point, I, I, I am beginning to think two things. 
first, that the Ba'ul are just post-Baharai Kelpians. And or second, that uh, the Ba'ul are Lord Voldemort. Because that that voice, <laughs> that's Voldemort. They, they just like hired, you know, Tom Riddle for this job or something. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, right? Yeah, it is. There's, there's a kind of this weird whisper hissing thing going on. Yeah, we may need to see if they have eyebrows or not. I, we don't really get a clear look in this episode, but we may have to check on that in the future. Evil snake person that maybe lives in a pile of goo is really immediately what gets conjured from this point. So there's some dark magic. So what I hear you saying is that you think the red signals are actually horcruxes. Oh my gosh. Honestly, it works. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I'm no wonder I liked this story so much. And Saru is just Harry in book five. He's annoying everybody. Yes, right. He is. He is caps lock Harry at this point. He's caps lock Saru for sure. Well, in in response to, to this, 10 Ba'ul sentry ships prepare to attack Discovery. And at this point, Pike goes into awesome mode. He says, consider your next action carefully. Saru is a political asylum seeker and a member of Starfleet. And when the Ba'ul ask why he's endangering his people to protect this Kelpian, Pike just says, this Kelpian is our people. And this is the moment where I cried. But the Ba'ul are, are clever here. They don't really threaten discovery. And instead, what they do is simply say that if they can't get Saru back, then they'll destroy his village. And Saru loses it again. And Pike now orders him off the, the bridge. I, I just have to say that I know this is a point that drives plots forward, right? It just, it's everywhere uh, in in all forms of writing. But it, it just... Don't we know by now that it's a bad decision to let the like emotionally dysregulated and unpredictable and problematic character walk away alone? <laughs> like, couldn't somebody have escorted him off of the bridge? I know in a second we're going to see that Burnham catches up to him because she's super smart lady. But this is a bad decision to let him go right now. Well, it's a bad decision from the perspective of, of Saru. But I think from Pike's perspective... He's trying to manage a combat situation, and Saru is making that difficult, or, or in fact, impossible. He's his presence on the bridge is exacerbating this this uh, this situation that is about to become violent, and so Saru here is a real liability. But you're right that there should be some protocol, like whenever anyone is thrown off the bridge, like that doesn't happen. No, you don't get thrown off the bridge uh, so that you can go make cookies or something, right? You're getting thrown off the bridge because you're a problem on the bridge. So how is there not just automatically some protocol that a security person standing near the door escorts that person someplace? And, and yeah, so we should we should do this, this quick scene in the transporter room, right? So Saru is going to beam back to his village so that it won't be destroyed, right? He's going to turn himself in and Burnham arrives to stop him. Uh, but Saru says, wouldn't you do this for your brother? And so Burnham doesn't stop him. She just lets him go because, of course, yeah, she would do this exact thing to save Spock. It definitely, I think, pulled on all of our, our heartstrings and, and made me anticipate even more wanting to see Burnham and Spock together on, on screen. Well, now that Saru has beamed back down to the, the planet, we see the Ba'ul ships disengage. And then we, we actually find out that Saru's been captured by the Ba'ul and Discovery has lost his signal. So they don't know where he is. They can't just beam him back. They can't 
rescue him. And that's going to set up the real driving obstacle that has to be overcome for the, the rest of the episode. We get two scenes now in the Discovery Lab where Tilly and Ariam are working through this sphere data. And Burnham is there. She suspects that the Ba'ul are hiding something about Kelpian physiology. And so they find out what the sphere has on Kaminar. And uh, they discover that 2,300 years ago, most of the Kelpian population was post-Vaharai. And on top of that, there were hardly any Ba'ul. And in fact, the Ba'ul only narrowly survived extinction. And and from this information, they extrapolate that the Ba'ul are actually the prey species on this planet, and the Kelpians are the predators. But something changed. It's fascinating to to read back the line of you don't know who you are through this information, right? Because instead of just what we were maybe positing, which was that we are one and the same, what's actually being said is you don't even know that you're a monster, which I still don't totally get because the Ba'ul are really creepy metal monsters. We'll get to that later, <laughs> but it drives home how entrenched in histories of oppression both the Ba'ul and the Kelpians are, which I, I really didn't see coming. I didn't see this coming either, and I'm really excited to dig in on this with you once we get the the rest of the picture, which we're, we're not going to get till we actually meet uh, the only Ba'ul who we'll, we'll see on screen here. So let's go meet this Ba'ul and get everything on the table. So everything that we we just learned from the sphere data is really to, to set up what's going to happen in the Ba'ul dungeon where Saru and Serana are being held. And this dungeon looks really cool. It's like Tron with a pool. Uh, you know, I don't know if I had to be in a dungeon, maybe this is the one I would probably choose to have to be in. Oh, no, there are better dungeons. Hard disagree. <laughs> do, do you have alternative suggestions? I don't know. I feel like more of a, a vampire dungeon is my style, you know, with some some stone and some candles. <laughs> this was a little too minimalist. But those vampire dungeons are so cold and, and drafty. I, I, yeah, I think you've got it all wrong. We might, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, this is the, this is another disagreement we might have to uh, turn to the forum for. Are you uh, are you team vampire dungeon or team Ba'ul dungeon here? Let us what know. What temperature do you think the Ba'ul live in? I don't think it's like nice and warm there. It's well constructed, and there does not seem to be a a draft. And stone, of course, retains a, a chill, right, to make things damp and cold. Uh, it, this might be minimalist, but it is high tech, right? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. When we're through this scene, I I have a lot of questions. I'm just going to save them for the end of this scene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not convinced it's high tech. Let's find out. Okay, right. Well, some drones come in and they they scan the the Kelpians. And Saru is fearless here trying to protect Serana, but he ends up chained to the wall by what I thought was some cool bowel technology, but I think you probably thought was uh, was, was low tech and didn't look very good, I guess, at this point. The chains were way too easy to break. <laughs> For for Saru, I'm not sure that we could do that. I think he's got this uh, this Kelpian rage strength right now, as we're gonna we're gonna find out. But at this point, we we get to the part of this scene that is is really fascinating. We finally get to see a Ba'ul. This Ba'ul emerges from the pool, snarling and really scary. And uh, Arniakowski, the director, has 
borrowed a lot of technique here from the film Alien in the way that he is showing this Ba'ul. And it really scared me. Like this made this sentient person look like a monster. Okay, here are some of my questions. Is this sentient person not a monster? Why does it live in a pile of goo? (laughs) Why wasn't Patrick Stewart in this scene arguing with the pile of goo? Yeah, I was thinking quite a bit about Skin of Evil here as well. And I'm sure that that probably was intentional, some kind of homage to what is otherwise a uh, a not particularly good episode of The Next Generation. And and I, too, have tons of questions about the Ba'ul physiology. What environment did they evolve to thrive in? And how were they and the Kelpians, who seem so physiologically different, ever actually in the same environment such that they would be competing for resources and such. I have so many questions about how how that would happen. Especially because one answer could be like, oh, they evolved this way. But no, they got the warp technology 20 years ago. So I don't know. Are we supposed to think they live in the lake? That's why their ship comes out of the lake later? How do they control the ship? Is it from, are the controls in the goo? I, I like, honestly, the effects were cool. The voice was cool. The monster was real scary. And it was a neat trick because, you know, oh no, the Kelpians are actually the monsters, not the thing that looks like a monster, right? Though I think the Bowel are still being pretty big evil jerks uh, in this episode, such as when they want to commit genocide. But why did we make this choice? What does it serve? I, I just, is it is it just so that we're kind of watching the ring? Right. If the Ba'ul actually live in the ocean where this big 50 kilometer diameter city is submerged, which, which is where Saru and, and Saran are, are being held. Yeah. If the Ba'ul actually live in the ocean, why do they need to build that city in the first place? But also if they live in the ocean, uh, in what way were the Kelpians really a, 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 a threat to them? Right. I mean, we know that great white sharks are real awesome predators, but white-tailed deer are not feeling particularly threatened by great white sharks because they don't inhabit the same environment and they are not going to. So yeah, these were, I had, I had real questions here. I think that these choices were largely aesthetic, as you suggest, and uh, maybe weren't maybe weren't thought through the way that we are trying to think them through, but maybe, maybe they were, and maybe we're going to find out more about them. We have been puzzled by the relationship between these two species since the series premiere. So hopefully we will just get more about this. You zeroed in on my question, which is really just why did we make this choice? And if it's just to have some cool visual effects in this episode and we never come back to it, I think I'll be left a little bit unsatisfied it it was real scary, though. Like, they did a good job with that. Yeah, so much menacing dripping of water. I mean, it was it was good. And Saru's reaction to the, the Ba'ul are, are not quite as intellectual as ours have been. His are more instinctive. And without any real thought or seeming control, he suddenly shoots spikes out of his head at the Ba'ul. 
And and this is the new thing that his body's been doing since he doesn't have threat ganglia there anymore. Uh, they don't really do anything to the Ba'ul. The Ba'ul is fine and, and really is just interested in Saru's behavior. And here we're going to get a monologue that explains all of this backstory to us. We've been alluding to it already. He says that post-Fahari Kelpians are incapable of governing themselves, and the Federation has no idea what it has welcomed into its midst. He says the great balance is the only way to ensure the Kelpians don't destroy everything in their path. And he goes on to explain that the Ba'ul only survived extinction by developing technology that gave them superiority over the Kelpians. And once they had the upper hand, they put a much reduced Kelpian population in what are essentially reservations. And individual Kelpians have been collected and exterminated before they reach Vaharai so that they won't turn into these uber predators, these threats. And we get almost no time with this information before we get into an intense action sequence. But I think that we need to pause here and talk about the moral questions and uh, maybe also some historical analogs on our own world. So I'll just put the question to you first, Valerie. Are the Bowel evil? Are they the bad guys here? Are they the monsters in this situation? Well, I think, you know, back to the point of dual identity and second chances and all that, um, or even just thinking on the the dialectic of holding both truths, which is something we talked about a lot last season, is seems like, you know, neither one of them is definitively the bad or the good guy, right? They've both done uh, horrible things, committed atrocities on both sides, past and present. We just weren't witness to what the Kelpians have done. I did want to say that um, to your point that technology is how they survived, it's not that Saru's head head, head teeth spike things don't affect the Ba'ul. It's that the Ba'ul has some sort of force field around it that that stops the spikes. So again, that is how it's technology that is that is helping the Ba'ul to protect themselves. And something that I was really interested in when the Ba'ul says, you know, Starfleet does not know what is accepted into its ranks. I mean, well, um, all of Star Trek is about how humans used to not be able to control their violence and their rage, and now they can. And the same with Vulcans, right? That's the backstory to to two of the the most well-known principal species that we see in this world. So it only stands to reason that Kelpians might be able to do the same. By the time we get to the end of the episode, I'm... I'm wishing we had a little bit more of a discussion of, of how exactly the Kelpians are going to do that because all of this stuff happens without a plan and I want a plan. <laughs> but but this isn't a new narrative to us at all in our in our own history but also in the history of Trek. The story of of how humans got from World War 3 to the Federation and maybe even more especially the story of how the Vulcans turn to their religion of of logic uh, to suppress and control their emotions from what had been an insanely violent past. These are stories that have always interested me, and especially especially the Vulcan one. And I have long wanted to to see more of that on screen. And we do get some of that about the Vulcans in in Enterprise. But I think this is a real opportunity uh, for Star Trek to show us a species dealing with that. And that will be a a, a phenomenal analogy for 
our, ourselves, right? To a, a, a mirror for us to see ourselves in and, and think about some ways to overcome our own negative uh, emotions and, uh, I don't know, perhaps, you know, selfishness and sort of baser tendencies to, to, create the the type of paradise that the the federation is and when this episode ends you know we get a sense that that is going to happen that that's what is the next step and it would be great to to check in on that from time to time just in the same way that we have checked in on the klingon happenings even though they're not central to the the plot of this season anymore but you know glenn to return it to to the moral question about uh, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys here? That's something much more complex. The episode itself doesn't actually make it particularly complex. In fact, we just proceed as if the Ba'ul are the bad guys. The Ba'ul are oppressing the Kelpians, and the right thing to do is to help liberate the Kelpians. And our characters never actually stop and have the type of conversation that I want us to have or ask the questions that I want us to ask about this. Because this story does not really, to me, make the Ba'ul out to be complete bad guys here, right? They had an opportunity to exterminate all the Kelpians. This is something they easily could have done, and they chose not to do that. They've, in fact, avoided committing genocide for potentially 2,000 years. They don't actually enslave the Kelpians in any way, though that was something I had speculated in The Brightest Star. They just keep them contained in these autonomous villages. And Saru even describes those villages as a paradise. Those villages have no hunger, no poverty, no violence, which if this rage situation is as bad as it seems like it's going to be, that might not be true if Kelpians are in their their natural environment. And the, the great balance, to me, maybe does seem to be a thing that the Ba'ul genuinely believe in as a way for the two species to live in harmony. It's a, a, a thing they settled on as the moral choice to not just exterminate the, the Kelpians. They found another way where they could guarantee their safety, uh, but also allow this species to continue to survive, this sentient species to continue. So to me, this didn't seem quite so black and white as the characters are going to continue to act like it is here in this in this episode. I do think that you're leaving out one very big detail, which is that, you know, I spent a large portion of the episode thinking that Kelpians are actually okay. They actually survive the Vaharai because they just turn into the Ba'ul. But but the one of the hugest plot twists here is that, no, they're just being murdered. I mean, people are being exterminated with great frequency all across the planet all the time. It is not such a simplistic living in peaceful harmony as as maybe that narrative that that you were pointing to makes it seem. Right, people are are being murdered and I don't think that we have any indication that that Kelpians are dying of natural causes very frequently. It does, although it's not clear to us when this actually happens, if this is really something kind of like puberty for them, but it does seem that this is a, 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 that the Vahare is going to happen to all of them, which means that, yes, they're all being collected and being murdered. That's not okay. You should not murder people, just to, to be clear. But we're being told here as the audience to hate that situation and to sympathize with the Kelpians here. But what we're ignoring is that the situation was reversed 2,000 years ago, that it was the Ba'ul who were being faced with genocide at the hands of the Kelpians, and that they did not respond in kind. 
right? They came up with another solution. They tried to find a solution that is workable. I don't think this is a good solution. And this is actually also what Captain Pike uh, says here as well. Like, we can help you find a better solution here. Uh, I just had reservations about the way that our characters, for the most part here, ignore that fact. And, you know, I went and as I was watching this, and in fact, my, my wife had the, the same thought, and we, we paused and, and talked about this, that if we uh, set aside the calling business, the, the murdering people when they get to a certain age business, there's a real historical analog here to the way that the allied powers, or maybe not all the allied powers, but the United States, France, and the United Kingdom dealt with Japan and Germany following World War II, in which they were allowed to have autonomy, and in fact, had societies rebuilt that largely did away with hunger and poverty and violence, but they were not allowed themselves to uh, take up arms again. Uh, they were not allowed to have extensive military to deploy military outside of their borders. We we're not allowed to have nuclear weapons and 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 so on. And in fact, the Western Allied powers continued to station troops in both Germany and Japan for fifty years. In fact, actually, but continuously, but on a massive scale for for fifty years. And so, this is a situation in which Japan and Germany had some of their autonomy, some of their independence on the world stage taken from them uh, as a result of being a losing party in this war. But it's because of awful things that were perpetrated during this horrible war, right? Because they themselves were doing things like committing genocide and the international community felt like they couldn't be trusted not to do that again, but we didn't want to punish those people. And so this is the arrangement that was that was made. To me, that seemed like the historical analog here. I think that's a very apt historical analog. And it's something that we see play out in a lot of Trek shows. Obviously, um, in, in Deep Space Nine, this, this comes up a lot with Germany in particular. Um, but we do see an awful lot of plot points where characters come from planets that have been locked in these just century-long feuds with with other species on their own planet or with adversaries nearby and they're in their part of the galaxy. And, and so this is something we keep coming back to. And it really highlights this idea where we can often excuse our horrific behavior out of, you know, saying that it's for everybody's best interest, or it's for your own good, or it's for our own good. And there is a line between understanding oppression and understanding trauma, and excusing atrocities that that come from that kind of reasoning. And as far as we can tell, this situation has been going on for a long time. It, it, you know, it's not entirely clear in the conversation that Tilly and Ariam and, and Burnham are having, but this does seem to have gone on for uh, something like 2000 years. And I was also really fascinated by the extent to which the you know generations and generations and generations after this moment where the Ba'ul themselves are nearly exterminated by the Kelpians, they still have this intense fear of even a single Kelpian reaching Vahari or surviving it and discovering the, the truth of the great balance. I, I was real I was really fascinated by how that culture has gone on uh, with that value for 
so long, but they are super concerned about this. And so, uh, you know, back here, we are still here in the, the Bowel Dungeon. Saru and Serana are going to be executed. And at this point, the Bowel goes back into the pool and some drones come in. But here's where Saru gets real mad and uh, breaks out of his chains and smashes up these murder drones. Uh, and then he starts building something from the, the wreckage. I always appreciate a reminder of how brilliant Saru is and and they it's been interesting to see how of all the short treks the brightest star is just so essential to to what's happening here in season 2 right and having this scene in the back of our head where we saw Saru do this before Right. What he's doing here is MacGyvering a radio out of these murder drones, and he contacts the Discovery. And uh, Saru and Serana, they want to smash the Great Balance to bits, and they want to tell the Kelpians the, the truth. And, and here's where Saru talks about how the post-Fahari Kelpians are going to have to learn how to control this instinctive rage that we have seen him uh, succumbing to throughout this episode. But He also says that he believes that this is what the Red Angel brought them here to do. And this is where I sort of had this question about the the meaning of Saru's final statement in his voiceover uh, in the in the the teaser, because it seems here in this moment that he has a kind of religious or, or spiritual belief that he's actually on some kind of divine mission to free his people, that he's Moses in this moment. I mean, Glenn, I honestly don't know. I half expect this this red angel to come out, reach out its hand and say, you know, may the prophets walk with you, Saru. And uh, we're back in Bajoran religion, um, which we both have a great fondness for. So, uh, I mean, yeah, that does seem to be what the scene is suggesting, uh, what the episode is suggesting, what Saru's worldview and, and Pike's worldview is suggesting. And then we have a, a couple naysayers on, on board the Discovery in the form of Burnham and, and Ash. I really can't predict where this is all going. And I think that's a pretty cool feature of the episode that I actually don't know how to answer your question. Well, I think by the end of the episode, we're going to see that no matter what Saru is feeling or believing about himself in this moment, he's going to feel differently about it once he actually sees the the Red Angel. But I think we will get back to the matter at hand here, which is the the, the breaking of the, the change, the liberating of the, the Kelpian. So Discovery is immediately on board with this idea. And they even think that they'll be able to convince the Ba'ul that the Kelpians don't have to be a threat, that they can find some way to create uh, a new balance that doesn't involve murdering people. And Tilly has a plan to use the sphere data to induce Vahari in all Kelpians. And so they do it. They do this uh, immediately. And I have to say that I was surprised that there was no conversation about this here, that they didn't decide to wait even like 10 minutes and just make like a little pros and cons list. Yeah, it was a big decision, as I said earlier, without a plan. I understand the the immediacy um, of, of the need here. And I think we say this a lot with Discovery, no matter how much we love it, is we want it to slow down and give us more thoughtful explorations or explanations of certain things, including what kind of plan do we have for when the entire planet now is dealing with rage for the first time ever <laughs> or maybe uh, i don't know warn the kelpians how terrifying to go through this and not know it's about to happen 
Right, because they all think that this is something that is actually going to to kill them. So they've all just gone through like uh, a near death experience, or like feel, yeah, feel like they have just somehow miraculously survived the the Black Death. But like in these moments, they have to be absolutely terrified. This actually, in some ways, seems like a really cruel thing to 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 do to them without without any warning. Well, this is where we discover that the Babu live in massive underwater cities, or at least. Some of them do, maybe. But anyway, one of these one of these massive underwater cities rises to the surface of the ocean and it activates the watchful eyes in every single Kelpian village. And they are building up a massive amount of energy from the city. And this indicates that the Ba'ul are going to exterminate the Kelpians rather than allow them to reach Vaharai. This is how terrified they are of Kelpians in this post-Vaharai rage state. But Pike is not going to allow genocide to happen. But even still, they'll only be able to destroy a few of the Watchful Eyes before the Ba'ul are able to activate them. So it's just not going to go well. So here he turns to diplomacy one last time, and and he tells the Ba'ul that if they commit genocide, they will become the Federation's enemies, and this agreement that they have will be null and void. But, you know, if the Ba'ul calm down, then the Federation can help negotiate a, a sort of new world order, a new great balance that, you know, doesn't have to involve murdering every Kelpian when they reach their rage puberty or, you know, whatever it is that's actually happening here, whatever the Vaharai actually is. But the Ba'ul do not care. They initiate the extermination and Discovery just cannot stop them. But then the Red Angel appears and prevents the Ba'ul from sending the signal with some sort of impossibly massive EMP. And here's where Saru and Serana actually see the angel. And, and this is the closest image that we've seen of this Red Angel yet as well. I loved the effect of us getting more visual clarity on the Red Angel and then subsequently hearing that what we were actually seeing is what the Red Angel looks like with Saru's advanced vision. That was super cool. Yeah, that was a real nice touch. But at, at, at first, on my first watch, I was a little confused about why it looked so different, actually. So uh, I thought that really worked uh, worked very well, that there was an explanation at the end, but that it wasn't explained to us in the mo- in the moment because the the tension and kind of confusion that I was feeling there actually really heightened my interest in the image. We have a couple of codas to this episode, and and uh, the first of them is in the, the galley where Pike gives Tyler a copy of Saru's report so that Section 31 will have all of this information. And, and this is actually where we, we get that detail about Saru's uh, Kelpian vision being better than the other humanoids. And based on his experience with the angel, Saru thinks that the red angel is a, a humanoid. In some kind of mechanized suit. So at this point, Pike even seems to think that this is an alien with advanced technology and probably not actually an, an messenger or an agent of the, the divine, as the word angel would, would indicate. And if this humanoid or, or angel has the ability to time travel, that kind of explains to us how how it knows when something horrible is about to happen or when something, you know, what moment in time that thing needs to happen at. And of course, I think this ties us back into something we got early in this season, which is, you know, Pike and Burnham's conversation about Clark's third law. And the reason I asked this question earlier about whether Saru thought that he was 
himself an, an agent of this red angel and therefore an agent of the divine is because of the the speed with which he acted. But I actually also think it's more important for uh, for Pike, how Pike has been behaving. Pike has been acting as if these red signals are divine instructions that they're that they're beacons for the discovery to follow and then to fix whatever it whatever problem they find when they get to that location and so they get to this location and the problem that he sees is the calling and he puts an end to it without maybe treating the problem the way that say captain picard would treat the problem and without even discussing it with his superiors and without waiting. And I think in part because he has maybe felt like discovery has been being sent on a divine mission, though he's never said as much, uh, you know, in actual dialogue. So I wonder how he's going to react to Saru's assertion here, if he's going to continue to react to the appearance of these signals and the appearance of the angel this way. Well, here's where I actually did appreciate the kind of contrarian voice uh, of Ash Tyler in this episode, because I do think that he makes a good point. Why are we all, without sitting and talking about it together, assuming that this being is benevolent just because stuff that we see as good has happened as a result of the interventions, right? We don't know. And I think at some point, Tyler even uses the word agenda, right? We don't know what this Red Angel's agenda is. And it is odd to me that Ash is so easily dismissed and that both sides of what is possible aren't considered. Because if it is a humanoid, then I think this question of agenda becomes all the more pertinent, right? Right. I think up to this point, the idea that maybe this is God and a God in the sense of someone who uh, wants to order the universe in a way that is good for people and and therefore wanting to to fix the problems that we see when we get to wherever this signal is is pointing us. But yeah, if this is just some guy, you know, right? If this is just Sam Beckett hopping around the the universe, then why should we give any credence to that person, right? This is just a person just like us uh, with better toys, but without necessarily any kind of uh, of omniscience, and certainly not without with, and certainly not with any kind of uh, of of divine benevolence either. So I I appreciate that, though I I do think that Tyler is is being a, a little more crazy paranoid uh than is good for anybody yes in a lot of ways like i said i i agree with that reading i also think that we we get reminded of something pretty darn important here which ash uses to throw some serious shade at pike and i don't appreciate that but i do think it is an interesting or worthwhile point at least to consider that ash's worldview is shaped by having lived through the klingon war and Pike's is not. There is a privilege in Pike's happy-go-lucky worldview that Ash feels he cannot access. I think that's a pretty interesting point. And here in this conversation, Tyler actually mirrors the Ba'ul. He's saying he's making the same case that the Ba'ul make about the way that they treat the Kelpians. This is the justification for Section 31, that we will take whatever means are necessary. We will do the dirtiest, shadiest, most immoral things in order to 
prevent wars from happening, in order to preserve the status quo, in order to maintain the Federation as a, a paradise so that most people, most of the tens of trillions of inhabitants of the Federation don't ever have to even think about the horrible things that Section 31 does. This is the same justification that the Ba'ul make as well, which is that we have to do these awful things in order to maintain peace, in order to protect ourselves from the other that is violent, that is inherently violent simply by nature of being another and having the means to carry out violence, uh, it, whether it's uh, weird time traveling, supermassive EMP devices, or just skull spikes that you can shoot out of your head. Okay, if Ash turns out to have been a human version of a Klingon sleeper agent who then turned out to be a Klingon human version of a Ba'ul sleeper agent... I'm going to be real frustrated. <laughs> yeah, that's just too much to keep track of. Though if he can do that Ba'ul voice, I might be into it. Maybe it was him the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's just actually been in his quarters with a voice modulator the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is actually just the plot to scream. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can uh, we can leave the the mess hall on on that note and get to the the last bit of our coda here, where we're in uh, Saru's quarters. Serana is visiting Saru on board the Discovery, and she's totally in awe of seeing Kaminar from space. And I I loved the the giddy emotion in this shot. But this scene gets really sad because Saru wants Serana to stay with him to to not go back to Kaminar, at least you know not for a little while. But she has to stay on their home world because there is work to do building a new society. We've talked about this a little bit already. It would be amazing to see how that works. And so on this note, they head to the transporter room and they have a, a fond farewell there. But when Serana is gone, Saru visibly struggles to to keep it together. I mean, he's just been dealing with all of these intense emotions in the last 24 hours. And, uh, you know, he's sort of losing his sister again here is you know, what it what it seems like is going on in his eyes there. Yeah. And Burnham is right there to take her place by his side as his family, just as she was before. Yeah, and they exchange some lines from the the play Agamemnon by Aeschylus. So we, we actually get some more classics and some more Trojan War business here. And uh, the line is this, it's, He who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. Uh, this, is a, this is a great line. This is a, a beautiful play. Agamemnon is awesome. Uh, this immediately made me regret that I had assigned my students Antigone this semester instead of Agamemnon, though I stand by Antigone as a pretty awesome play. Uh, but these lines really packed a punch. Yeah, I mean, we just we cannot escape the classics. It is everywhere. And it also made me think, I, I don't know if any listeners like to do uh, the New York Times crossword, but it's something I've been enjoying getting into the last year. And it is just chock full of classics and Star Trek references, oddly enough. And Aeschylus uh, was one of the clues, you know, to I think Wednesday's puzzle. So I was like, it's following me everywhere. Do you think the Discovery writers are actually writing also the uh, New York Times crossword puzzles? It, it could be because they employ editors, but it's really just freelance submissions for the actual puzzles. So totally possible. Do but I do buy into this conspiracy theory? <laughs> I want this to be true. That when when uh, when Erica Lippold and, and uh, Boyan Kim are not actively writing an episode, they're just uh, uh, practicing by writing crossword puzzles for the New York Times. I, I hope that's true. Well, uh, we've got 
We we have one more thing to say about this episode before we uh, we get into our smoochberry kill. The, the episode comes to a close with with Burnham having learned from watching Saru's suffering, and as the the lines from Aeschylus here emphasize, and she is now even more motivated to find Spock, and so she wants to go home to Vulcan to start the search again. So I guess next episode we're going to be on on Vulcan, which I, I'm excited about. I, I always love Vulcan, and I'm I'm very interested in Vulcan culture. It's going to be real neat to see how it is portrayed on this show. Um, uh, I can't wait. Well, let's get into our smooch Mary kill here. It's it's your turn, Valerie, to uh, to to pick three candidates here, and uh, let's let's start with the the smooch. A lot of options here. <laughs> yeah. Um. This is a. A very probably controversial answer, but um, I'm going to smooch the Ba'ul. Yeah, I don't think that you're going to enjoy that experience. <laughs> I just think, I just think it would be a fun date, you know, like we would maybe go to like a heavy metal show <laughs> or something, take like a, a, a knife making class or an axe throwing class. It just feels like it would be fun for one night. Yeah, I think that guy is probably a guitarist in like some thrash metal band, maybe even some speed metal band for sure. So yeah, like that sounds like a good scene. So I, th- I think you've convinced me that's that's actually a pretty good choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't you don't tell your friends about this guy, but you know, you have fun that one night. <laughs> My my Mary is going to, I think, be pretty acceptable, but here again with a controversial opinion, especially given uh, the defenses I've been laying out throughout this entire episode, but I'm going to kill Ash. Well, I'm so I'm really surprised by that. What What is the reason for this? I just, I miss the old Ash. I, and maybe I'm going to kill him in the way that like Trek kills people where he'll come back later, but but be better or different or something again. I don't know. He's beautiful. It's really difficult to kill him. I just needed a little break from this new curmudgeon pessimist. And I'm such a pessimist already. I just, it wouldn't work out. It's too much. Getting rid of him. He's turned into a, a real brood hunk uh, in this show. I mean, he keeps getting he keeps getting broodier, but he also keeps getting hunkier at the same time. I mean, he just is getting more and more handsome every episode. So that was a, was a bold choice there. So who are you going to marry? I'm going to, you kind of, you... You took it right out of my mouth earlier in the episode. I was kind of frustrated that that you saw it so early. But obviously, I'm going to marry Dr. Pollard. She's brilliant. She's kind. She's curious. She's there when you need her. And I feel like we could have a relationship with depth that grows over time. You know, something you can't have with Ash or the Ba'ul. Yeah, plus free access to all the neurological scans that you could uh, you could ever want. Right. Yes, I'm a hypochondriac, so that's really what's behind all of it. Yeah, I'm not sure this is actually going to be a good choice for you, but uh, nonetheless, I will I will support it because that's the type of friend that I am. But uh, on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And as always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you like those creative projects, if you're enjoying what we do here and you want to offer us some of your support, please visit our Patreon and do so. We would really appreciate it. And make sure you come on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know if you are on Team Vampire Dungeon or Team Baul Dungeon. Uh, But on a more serious note, we raised some pretty tough moral and ethical questions in our discussion of this episode, and, and we'd really love to have that conversation with you. So come on over to the forums and, and, and let us know what you think. And until then, stay spacey.